Section 5 of Catherine de' Medici by Honor de Balzac, translated by Catherine Prescott Warman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Chateau de Blois. The banks of the Loire, from Blois to Angers, were the favourite resort of the last two branches of the royal race which occupied the throne before the House of Bourbon. That beautiful valley plain so well deserves the honour bestowed upon it by kings that we must here repeat what was said of it by one of our most eloquent writers. There is one province in France which is never sufficiently admired, fragrant as Italy, flowery as the banks of the Guadalquivir, beautiful especially in its own characteristics, wholly French, having always been French, unlike in that respect to our northern provinces, which have degenerated by contact with Germany, and to our southern provinces, which have lived in concubinage with Moors, Spaniards, and all other nationalities that adjoined them. This pure, chaste, brave, and loyal province is Touraine. Historic France is there. Auvergne is Auvergne. Languedoc is only Languedoc. But Touraine is France. The most national river for Frenchmen is the Loire, which waters Touraine. For this reason, we ought not to be surprised at the great number of historically noble buildings possessed by those departments which have taken the name, or derivations of the name, of Loire. At every step we take in this land of enchantment, we discover a new picture, bordered, it may be, by a river, or a tranquil lake reflecting in its liquid depths a castle with towers and woods and sparkling waterfalls. It is quite natural that in a region chosen by royalty for its sojourn where the court was long established, great families and fortunes and distinguished men should have settled and built palaces as grand as themselves. But it is not incomprehensible that royalty did not follow the advice indirectly given by Louis XI to place the capital of the kingdom at Tours. There, without great expense, the Loire might have been made accessible for the merchant service and also for vessels of war of light draught. There, too, the seat of government would have been safe from the dangers of invasion. Had this been done, northern cities would not have required such vast sums of money spent to fortify them, sums as vast as were those expended on the sumptuous glories of Versailles. If Louis the Fourteenth had listened to Vauban, who wished to build his great palace at Mont-Louis, between the Loire and the Cher, perhaps the revolution of 1789 might never have taken place. These beautiful shores still bear the marks of royal tenderness. The chateaus of Chambord, Amboise, Blois, Chenonceau, Chaumont, Plessis les Tours, all those which the mistresses of kings, financiers, and nobles built at Verrettes, Essay, Le Redoux, Bousset, Villandry, Valencay, Chanteloup, Dodatal, some of which have disappeared, though most of them still remain, are admirable relics, which remind us of the marvels of a period that is little understood by the literary sect of Middle Ages. Among all these chateaus, that of Blois, where the court was then staying, is one on which the magnificence of the houses of Orléans and of Valois has placed its brilliant sign manual, making it the most interesting of all for historians, archaeologists, and Catholics. It was at the time of which we write completely isolated. The town, enclosed by massive walls supported by towers, lay below the fortress. The chateau served, in fact, 
as fort and pleasure house above the town with its blue-tiled crowded roofs extending then as now from the river to the crest of the hill which commands the right bank lies a triangular plateau bounded to the west by a streamlet which in these days is of no importance for it flows beneath the town but in the fifteenth century so say historians it formed quite a deep ravine of which there still remains a sunken road almost an abyss between the suburbs of the town and the chateau it was on this plateau with a double exposure to the north and south that the counts of blois built in the architecture of the twelfth century a castle where the famous thibault de tierchur thibault le vieux and others held a celebrated court in those days of pure feudality in which the king was merely primus inter pares to use the fine expression of a king of poland the counts of champagne the counts of blois those of anjou the simple barons of normandy the dukes of bretagne lived with the splendour of sovereign princes and gave kings to the proudest kingdoms the plantagenets of anjou the lucinans of poitou the roberts of normandy maintained with a bold hand the royal races and sometimes simple knights like du glaguin refused the purple preferring the sword of connetable when the crown annexed the county of blois to its domain louis the twelfth who had a liking for this residence perhaps to escape plessis of sinister memory built at the back of the first building another building facing east and west which connected the chateau of the counts of blois with the rest of the old structures of which nothing now remains but the vast hall in which the states general were held under henri the third before he became enamoured of chambord francois the first wished to complete the chateau of bois by adding two other wings which would have made the structure a perfect square but chambord weaned him from bois where he built only one wing which in his time and that of his grandchildren was the only inhabited part of the chateau this third building erected by francois the first is more vast and far more decorated than the louvre the chateau of only the second it is in the style of architecture now called renaissance and presents the most fantastic features of that style therefore at a period when a strict and jealous architecture ruled construction when the middle ages were not even considered at a time when literature was not as clearly welded to art as it is now la fontaine said of the chateau de blois in his hearty good-humoured way the part that francois the first built if looked at from the outside pleased me better than all the rest there i saw numbers of little galleries little windows little balconies little ornamentations without order or regularity and they make up a grand hall which i like the chateau of blois had therefore the merit of representing three orders of architecture three epochs three systems three dominions perhaps there is no other royal residence that can compare with it in that respect this immense structure presents to the eye in one enclosure round one courtyard a complete and perfect image of that grand presentation of the manners and customs and life of nations which is called architecture at the moment when christophe was to visit the court that part of the adjacent land which in our day is covered by a fourth palace built seventy years later by gaston the rebellious brother of louis the thirteenth then exiled to blois was an open space containing pleasure grounds and hanging gardens picturesquely placed among the battlements and unfinished turrets of francois the first's chateau these gardens communicated by a bridge of a fine bold construction which the old men of blois may still remember to have seen demolished with a pleasure ground on the other side of the chateau which by the lay of the land was on the same level 
The nobles attached to the court of Anne de Bretagne or those of that province who came to solicit favours or to confer with the queen as to the fate and condition of Brittany, awaited in this pleasure ground the opportunity for an audience, either at the queen's rising or at her coming out to walk. Consequently, history has given the name of Peuchois or Breton to this piece of ground, which, in our day, is the fruit garden of a wealthy bourgeois and forms a projection into the Place des Jesuites. The latter place was included in the gardens of this beautiful royal residence, which had, as we have said, its upper and its lower gardens. Not far from the Place des Jesuites may still be seen a pavilion built by Catherine de' Medici, where, according to the historians of Blois, warm mineral baths were placed for her to use. This detail enables us to trace the very irregular disposition of the gardens, which went up and down according to the undulations of the ground, becoming extremely intricate around the chateau, a fact which helped to give it strength and caused, as we shall see, the discomfiture of the Duc de Guise. The gardens were reached from the chateau through external and internal galleries, the most important of which was called the Galerie de Cerf, on account of its decoration. This gallery led to the magnificent staircase which no doubt inspired the famous double staircase of Chambord. It led from floor to floor to all the apartments of the castle. Though La Fontaine preferred the Chateau of Francois I to that of Louis XII, perhaps the naivete of that of the good king will give true artists more pleasure, while at the same time they admire the magnificent structure of the knightly king. The elegance of the two staircases, which are placed at each end of the Chateau of Louis XII, the delicate carving and sculpture, so original in design, which abound everywhere, the remains of which, though time has done its worst, still charm the antiquary all, even to the semi-cloistral distribution of the apartments, reveals a great simplicity of manners. Evidently the court did not yet exist. It had not developed, as it did under Francois I and Catherine de' Medici, to the great detriment of feudal customs. As we admire the galleries, or most of them, the capitals of the columns and certain figurines of exquisite delicacy, it is impossible not to imagine that Michel Colomb, that great sculptor, the Michelangelo of Brittany, passed that way for the pleasure of Queen Anne, whom he afterwards immortalised on the tomb of her father, the last Duke of Brittany. Whatever La Fontaine may choose to say about the little galleries and the little ornamentations, nothing can be more grandiose than the dwelling of the splendid Francois. Thanks to I know not what indifference, to forgetfulness perhaps, the apartments occupied by Catherine de' Medici and her son Francois II present to us today the leading features of that time. The historian can there restore the tragic scenes of the drama of the Reformation, a drama in which the dual struggle of the Guises and the Bourbons against the Valois was a series of most complicated acts, the plot of which was here unravelled. The Chateau of Francois I completely crushes the artless habitation of Louis XII by its imposing masses. On the side of the gardens, that is, toward the modern Place des Jesuites, the castle presents an elevation nearly double that which it shows on the side of the courtyard. The ground floor on this side forms the second floor on the side of the gardens, where are placed the celebrated galleries. Thus the first floor above the ground floor toward the courtyard, where Queen Catherine was lodged, is the third floor on the garden side, and the king's apartments were four stories above the garden, which at the time of which we write was separated from the base of the castle by a deep moat. The chateau, already colossal as viewed from the courtyard, appears gigantic when seen from below, as La Fontaine saw it. 
He mentions particularly that he did not enter either the courtyard or the apartments, and it is to be remarked that from the Place des Jesuites all the details seem small. The balconies on which the courtiers promenaded, the galleries marvellously executed, the sculptured windows whose embrasures are so deep as to form boudoirs, for which indeed they served, resemble at that great height of fantastic decorations which scene painters give to a fairy palace at the opera. But in the courtyard, although the three stories above the ground floor rise as high as the clock tower of the Tuileries, the infinite delicacy of the architecture reveals itself to the rapture of our astonished eyes. This wing of the great building, in which the two queens, Catherine de Medici and Mary Stuart, held their sumptuous court, is divided in the centre by a hexagon tower, in the empty well of which winds up a spiral staircase, a Moorish caprice designed by giants, made by dwarfs, which gives to this wonderful facade the effect of a dream. The baluster of this staircase forms a spiral connecting itself by a square landing to five of the six sides of the tower, requiring at each landing transversal corbels which are decorated with arabesque carvings without and within. This bewildering creation of ingenious and delicate details, of marvels which give speech to stones, can be compared only to the deeply worked and crowded carving of the Chinese ivories. Stone is made to look like lacework. The flowers, the figures of men and animals clinging to the structure of the stairway are multiplied step by step until they crown the tower with a keystone on which the chisels of the art of the 16th century have contended against the naive cutters of images who 50 years earlier had carved the keystones of Louis XII's two stairways. However dazzled we may be by these recurring forms of indefatigable labour, we cannot fail to see that money was lacking to Francois I, for Blois, as it was to Louis XIV, for Versailles. More than one figurine lifts its delicate head from a block of rough stone behind it. More than one fantastic flower is merely indicated by chiselled touchings on the abandoned stone, though dampness has since laid its blossoms of mouldy greenery upon it. On a facade side by side with the tracery of one window, another window presents its masses of jagged stone carved only by the hand of time. Here, to the least artistic and the least trained eye, is a ravishing contrast between this frontage where marvels throng and the interior frontage of the Chateau of Louis XII, which is composed of a ground floor of arcades of fairy lightness supported by tiny columns resting at their base on a graceful platform and of two stories above it the windows of which are carved with delightful sobriety. Beneath the arcade is a gallery, the walls of which are painted in fresco. The ceiling also being painted, traces can still be found of this magnificence, derived from Italy and testifying to the expeditions of our kings, to which the Principality of Milan then belonged. Opposite to Francois I's wing was the chapel of the Counts of Blois, the façade of which is almost in harmony with the architecture of the later dwelling of Louis XII. No words can picture the majestic solidity of these three distinct masses of building. In spite of their non-conformity of style, royalty, powerful and firm, demonstrating its dangers by the greatness of its precautions, was a bond, uniting these three edifices, so different in character, two of which rested against the vast hall of the States General, towering high like a church. Certainly neither the simplicity nor the strength of the burgher existence, which were depicted at the beginning of this history, in which art was always represented, were lacking to this royal habitation. 
Blois was the fruitful and brilliant example to which the bourgeoisie and feudality, wealth and nobility gave such splendid replies in the towns and in the rural regions. Imagination could not desire any other sort of dwelling for the prince who reigned over France in the 16th century. The richness of seigneurial garments, the luxury of female adornment, must have harmonized delightfully with the lacework of these stones, so wonderfully manipulated. From floor to floor, as the king of France went up the marvellous staircase of his chateau of Bois, he could see the broad expanse of the beautiful Loire, which brought him news of all his kingdom as it lay on either side of the great river, two halves of a state facing each other and semi-rivals. If, instead of building Chambord in a barren, gloomy plain two leagues away, Francois I had placed it where, seventy years later, Gaston built his palace, Versailles would never have existed, and Blois would have become, necessarily, the capital of France. Four Valois and Catherine de' Medici lavished their wealth on the wing built by Francois I at Blois. Who can look at those massive partition walls, the spinal column of the castle in which are sunken deep alcoves, secret staircases, cabinets, while they themselves enclose halls as vast as that great council room, the guardroom, and the royal chambers in which, in our day, a regiment of infantry is comfortably lodged? Who can look at all this and not be aware of the prodigalities of crown and court? Even if a visitor does not at once understand how the splendour within must have corresponded with the splendour without, the remaining vestiges of Catherine de' Medici's cabinet, where Christophe was about to be introduced, would bear sufficient testimony to the elegancies of art, which peopled those apartments with animated designs in which salamanders sparkled among the wreaths, and the palette of the 16th century illumined the darkest corners with its brilliant colouring. In this cabinet, an observer will still find traces of that taste for gilding which Catherine brought with her from Italy. The princesses of her house loved, in the words of the author already quoted, to veneer the castles of France with the gold earned by their ancestors in commerce, and to hang out their wealth on the walls of their apartments. The Queen Mother occupied on the first upper floor of the apartments of Queen Claude of France, wife of Francois I, which may still be seen, delicately carved, the double C, accompanied by figures purely white, swans and lilies, signifying candidior candidis, more white than the whitest. The motto of the queen, whose name began, like that of Catherine, with a C, and which applied as well to the daughter of Louis XII as to the mother of the last Valois, for no suspicion, in spite of the violence of Calvinist calumny, has tarnished the fidelity of Catherine de Medici to Henri II. The Queen Mother, still charged with the care of two young children, him who was afterward Duke d'Alencon and Marguerite, the wife of Henri IV, the sister whom Charles IX called Margot, had need of the whole of the first upper floor. The King, Francois II, and the Queen, Mary Stuart, occupied on the second floor the royal apartments which had formerly been those of Francois I and were subsequently those of Henri III. This floor, like that taken by the Queen Mother, is divided in two parts throughout its whole length by the famous partition wall, which is more than four feet thick, against which rests the enormous walls which separate the rooms from each other. Thus, on both floors, the apartments are in two distinct halves. One half, to the south, looking to the courtyard, served for public receptions and for the transaction of business, whereas the private apartments were placed partly to escape the heat to the north, overlooking the gardens, 
on which side is the splendid facade with its balconies and galleries looking out upon the open country of the Vendomois and down upon the Pochoir des Bretons and the moat, the only side of which La Fontaine speaks. Chateau of Francois I was in those days terminated by an enormous unfinished tower, which was intended to mark the colossal angle of the building when the succeeding wing was built. Later, Gaston took down one side of it in order to build his palace onto it, but he never finished the work and the tower remained in ruins. His royal stronghold served as a prison or dungeon, according to popular tradition. As we wander today through the halls of this matchless chateau, so precious to art and to history, what poet would not be haunted by regrets and grieved for France at seeing the arabesques of Catherine's boudoir whitewashed and almost obliterated by order of the quartermaster of the barracks? This royal residence is now a barrack, at the time of an outbreak of cholera. The panels of Catherine's boudoir, a room of which we are about to speak, is the last remaining relic of the rich decorations accumulated by five artistic kings. Making our way through the labyrinth of chambers, halls, stairways, towers, we may say to ourselves with solemn certitude, here Mary Stuart cajoled her husband on behalf of the Guises. There the Guises insulted Catherine. Later, at the very spot, the second Balafre fell beneath the daggers of the Avengers of the Crown. A century earlier, from this very window, Louis the Twelfth made signs to his friend Cardinal Dambois to come to him. Here, on this balcony, Depenon, the accomplice of Ravalec, met Marie de Medici, who knew it was said of the proposed regicide and allowed it to be committed. In the chapel where the marriage of Henri the Fourth and Marguerite de Valois took place, the sole remaining fragment of the chateau of the Counts of Blois, a regiment now makes its shoes. This wonderful structure in which so many styles may still be seen, so many great deeds have been performed, is in a state of dilapidation which disgraces France. What grief for those who love the great historic monuments of our country to know that soon those eloquent stones will be lost to sight and knowledge, like others at the corner of the Rue de la Vielle Pelletine, possibly they will exist nowhere in these pages. It is necessary to remark that, in order to watch the royal court more closely, the Guises, although they had a house of their own in the town, which still exists, had obtained permission to occupy the upper floor above the apartments of Louis XII, the same lodgings afterwards occupied by the Duchess de Nemours under the roof. The young king, Francois II, and his bride, Mary Stuart, in love with each other like the girl and boy of sixteen which they were, had been abruptly transferred in the depth of winter from the Chateau de Saint-Germain, which the Duc de Guise thought liable to attack, to the fortress which the Chateau of Blois then was, being isolated and protected on three sides by precipices, and admirably defended as to its entrance. The Guises, uncles of Mary Stuart, had powerful reasons for not residing in Paris, and for keeping the king and court in a castle, the whole exterior surroundings of which could easily be watched and defended. A struggle was now beginning around the throne, between the House of Lorraine and the House of Valois, which was destined to end in this very chateau, twenty-eight years later, namely in 1588, when Henri III, under the very eyes of his mother, at that moment deeply humiliated by the Dorians, heard fall upon the floor of his own cabinet, the head of the boldest of all the Guises, second Balafre, son of that first Balafre, by whom Catherine de' Medici was now being tricked, watched, threatened, and virtually imprisoned. 
End of section five.